Now we're going to read from God's Word, and this evening we're reading in the book of John, chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. John 2, 1 through 12. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Now, both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. And when they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Jesus said to her, woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. Now, there were set there six water pots of stone, according to the manner of purification of the Jews, containing 20 or 30 gallons apiece. Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, draw some out now and take it to the master of the feast. And they took it. When the master of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, The master of the feast called the bridegroom, and he said to him, Every man at the beginning sets out the good wine, and when the guests have well drunk, then the inferior. You have kept the good wine until now. This beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum, he, his mother, his brothers, and his disciples, and they did not stay there many days. This is the word of the Lord. Well, in the book of John, some, uh, some commentators call this next section in the, in the Gospel of John, they call it the book of signs. And so John, chapters 2 through 11, part of what's happening in those chapters it, it could be called the book of signs because there are many things called signs that Jesus performs. And in this context, when we talk about a sign, we're talking about a miracle with meaning. A sign in this maybe theological sense is a miracle, but it's a miracle that has meaning. These signs, these miracles hold meaning. They tell us about the nature of Jesus. They tell us about the purpose of Jesus, why he came, who he is. And so here in chapter 2, this is the first sign publicly performed by Jesus. It's the beginning, it says in verse 11, the beginning of signs that Jesus did. The first of miracles with meaning that Jesus did. Now, what would you expect? What would you expect the first miracle performed by the Son of God? What would you expect from that? What would you expect it to be? Would it be something like healing a man who had been blind all his life? Would it be stilling a storm that's about to sink a ship? Would it be walking on the water or or maybe raising a little girl from the dead? What would you expect? You'd expect something that that would really make waves that everyone would be talking about that would have a lot of wow in it. But there's something surprising in this first of signs that Jesus performed. This is a sign. Jesus attends a wedding the, the host runs out of wine at the wedding. 
Jesus discreetly supplies wine by turning water into wine. And that's it. That's it. It's a miracle. It's full of meaning. It's full of significance about Jesus, who he is and why he came. And this is what you see in this first, but maybe slightly enigmatic enigmatic sign that Jesus performs. You see in this sign the new happiness and the new honor that Jesus brings. The new happiness and honor that Jesus brings. And we're going to look at three things in our text. First of all, we'll see how we pursue happiness and honor. We pursue happiness and honor. And then we'll see, secondly, how we run out of happiness and honor. We run out of happiness and honor. Then thirdly, we'll see that Jesus supplies superior happiness and honor. So let's start. First, we, we see how we pursue happiness and honor. This is in verses 1 through 3. The setting is a wedding, and the place is Cana of Galilee. That's near the town where Jesus grew up, maybe about three miles away, so you could walk there. It's all in the same region. The people would have known each other. And, and so we're not surprised that Jesus and his family, his mother and his brothers, they have family connections to this couple who's getting married. And they've been invited to the wedding. Jesus, Jesus' disciples, Jesus' mother, Jesus' brothers, they're all invited. They know the couple who's being married, and so they're all present. Now, something you should know is that in those days, a wedding was a little different event in that culture. Here we have a wedding, and it lasts maybe for an afternoon, maybe an afternoon into the evening. But in that culture, in those times, a wedding would span seven days. It would take place, the celebration would be a seven-day party. It was a celebration week of joy and of feasting. And so weddings, both now and then, weddings were gatherings of happiness. You would get together, and it was a happy time. Did you know that the Bible starts with a wedding? At the very beginning, the Bible starts with a wedding. You, you have Eden, it's paradise, it's perfection, and what's the very first thing that you see there? You see that God sets up a wedding. God sets up a marriage, a marriage between Adam and Eve. And it's, it's wonderful. God calls it very good. More broadly, what we're seeing in this is not just weddings and weddings being a place for happiness. More broadly, what we see is that God made people for happiness. He made human beings to be in a place of happiness. Wedding happiness, people, people are wired to seek happiness. That's what we were made, that was what we were born into, seeking happiness, not, not misery. Are you seeking happiness? Are you seeking happiness? You know that you are. At some level, even if you've not found it, you are seeking happiness. The question is, where do you seek happiness? Where are you looking for happiness? Now, this first wedding was a gathering of happiness. It was also a gathering of honor. It was a gathering of happiness and celebration. It was also a gathering of honor. Genesis 1, 27, we see this in the first wedding. It's, it, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a gathering of honor. John, uh, Genesis 1, 27, so God created man in his own image, in the image of God. He created him, male and female, he created them. Now, there's no greater honor that a being could have. The first man, the first woman, the first bride and groom 
They were made in the image of the being of highest honor. There's, there's in that first wedding, there's, you could almost call it teleological honor. By their constitution, they were honorable beings. It was not only by nature of whose image they were made in, it was also positional honor. There was honor in just their position that they were placed in. Genesis 1.28, God told the first bride, the first groom, have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And so what you see in that is all people were made with the highest honor. Honor in the image that they bear, honor in the position in which God placed them. We sometimes today will call this human dignity. It says, human, that phrase human dignity says that no matter where you sit, no matter what social class you are a part of, no matter what financial class you're in, high or low, you have dignity. You were made for honor because of what happened at the beginning. And so the question is not just, are you seeking happiness? We all are. The question is also, are you seeking honor? All of us seek honor by nature because we were created honorable being. It's in our nature. It's what we were made for. We were made for honor. And so the question is, where do you seek honor? Where do you seek your honor? Now, at this wedding in Cana in Galilee, you see this search both for happiness and for honor at this wedding. You see this, this search for happiness. People are at a wedding. They're holding a wedding and people are attending a wedding. They've been invited and they come. And, and you come to a wedding, a wedding week, you come looking for happiness. You don't come looking for a fight. You don't come because you know you're going to hate it. You come because it's a place of joy and, and you're there to share in the joy. So Jesus, the disciples, the family, they attend the celebration week. They're there for, for happiness. They're also, this is a place where people are, are looking for honor. Verse three, it says, when they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Now what's going on there? It, there's something of a search for honor, for holding on to honor in that statement that she made. You, you want to remember this. This takes place, this wedding takes place in a culture that was, it was largely an honor and shame culture. What that means is if you have a culture that is a, a, a righteousness and justice culture, a culture that's centered more around righteousness and justice, in those cultures, your actions will elevate you or demote you. If you're in a culture that is a power and weakness culture, well, in those cultures, it's your abilities that will elevate or demote you. But in an honor and shame culture, it's the opinion of other people that elevates or demotes you. The reputation of your name, the, the way that people think of you, the way that people talk about you, your social, social reputation makes or breaks you in an honor and shame culture. And in this wedding, something shameful is about to crest on, onto the, this wedding party. It would, it would be shameful to run out of wine in the middle of the wedding week. It would be something that would be publicly known. Everyone would realize there's nothing left to drink. They ran out. It would, it's something that would be remembered by people and, and they would repeat it. And so that's why Jesus' mother, Mary, she, it, it seems like she discreetly comes to him and says, 
they have no wine. She's likely asking him, and at this point he was established as a carpenter, as a business owner, she's asking him, would you, would you contribute to taking care of this, this, this shameful thing that's about to happen? Could, could you collect cash to, to help supply more wine for the party, for, for this, this, this couple whom we love? She's requesting that Jesus would keep the celebration going and keep their honor going and prevent social embarrassment for the groom. And so you see even in this little wedding, this little domestic celebration, you see that humans search for happiness and honor. And so Mary asked Jesus to preserve the wedding happiness and to preserve the wedding honor. Now, here's just one, one little application you can take from this. Mary comes to Jesus with this request, and it seems like a small thing. She's being discreet. It's not like she gets on the PA and just blasts it to everybody. She's just asking him discreetly. And here's an application. We see that small things are big to Jesus Small things are big to Jesus. You can bring big requests to Jesus. You can ask him to save your mother. You can ask him for spiritual revival for for an entire nation. But you can also bring small requests to Jesus. You can bring your worries, your daily little minuscule worries. You can bring to him your confusing friendships, your, your loneliness, the things that embarrass you. You can bring big and small, both great and small matters matter to Jesus. Another thing that we see here, and and this application is more of a question. It says Jesus was invited to the wedding. Is Jesus invited to your wedding? This couple invited Jesus to the wedding, and and so there's something in that. You, You should. You should bring Jesus into your crisis moments, the the giant troubles in life that threaten to sink your ship. But you should also bring Jesus into your personal affairs. Bring Jesus into your marriage. Bring him into the great delights and joys of your life, the deeply personal ones, the most personal ones. That means you should bring Jesus into things like your marriage. You should bring Jesus into your sexuality, into the start of your marriage, into the struggles of your marriage. You should should invite Jesus into that. You should bring him into your struggles for mental health. You should bring Jesus into every era. Invite him into it. Nothing is too little, nothing is too personal to involve Jesus. Now, we've looked at how we pursue happiness and honor. Now let's look at how we run out of happiness and honor. Verses three through eight, there's this wedding disaster. It's largely a social disaster, an honor crisis, and, and it's a happiness crisis because without wine, they have no beverages. There's no fluids for the festivities. People, people aren't going to keep feasting if they have nothing to drink. It would be like having a birthday party, but you run out of cake before everyone's served. It would be like having a graduation ceremony, but halfway through, you run out of diplomas. This would be an end to the wedding celebration, an end to the wedding happiness. It would also entail a wrecked reputation for the couple. People would be thinking, well, how could they have planned so poorly? It was an, it, this public example of bad planning. It, it was a lack of foresight, or maybe it was because they had a lack of money. There are more reasons, though, that Jesus is troubled by the depletion of the wedding wine, and, and this is in verses three through five. You, you, you'll notice here, it's, it's a little bit subtle, but it's clear in the text, Jesus is troubled at this wedding, at this moment when the request comes from his mother. His response to his mother, it's 
it's, if you're trying to read the tone in the times, it's slightly off-putting. He, he says to her woman, which it's, it's kind of like calling her ma'am. That's not a problem. But then he says, what do I have to do with you? That is, that is, it's a little bit disrespectful. It at least is putting some distance between him and her. And the reason that he does that is he's establishing that he's independent. He has a greater mission that transcends the bounds of family and the obligations of family. But more than that, there's some distance in his, in his tone and his language because Jesus is troubled. He's troubled at this wedding. Why? Why? How do we know that he's troubled? It's because he is thinking, at this wedding where they've run out of wine, Jesus is thinking about his own wedding. And he's thinking about his own wine at that wedding. You see how he's troubled about his own wedding. He says here that my hour has not yet come. What in the world is he talking about? Well, the hour, if you, especially as you read through the book of John, the hour is very specific. It's a key term in the book of John. The hour is talking about the torture and the trauma of the Christ. That's what the hour is. And he's saying, my hour has not yet come, but it's coming and it's on his mind. And what Jesus is saying here is, if I start something now, you're asking me to do something. If I start something now, it is going to trigger my death. He knows that it's time for him to start doing public signs. And once that train starts, it will end for him with his torture and his trauma. So he's thinking about his wedding. Now, there's something that's also very, they're just wonderful in this. Because believer, there is a wedding feast for you that is coming up. The, the happiness of a heavenly wedding celebration, it's real. It's just as real as this wedding that Jesus attended. And for you, it's a wedding that's coming. And it's not going to be a wedding that lasts just for a day, for a week, but it's going to last for eternity. And so you, believer, are headed towards a wonderful wedding celebration of the Lamb. But Jesus is thinking about this wedding, and here's why he's troubled. He knows. He's just about to start his public ministry. He knows to get to his wedding, Jesus has to go through his death. That's the only way. And so Jesus, we find in this wedding, Jesus was unhappy when everyone around him was happy. He's troubled about his wedding. He's also troubled about the wine that will be at his own wedding. The, this, this remark here that maybe as we read through it, you noted, it talks about these stone water pots that were for ceremonial purification. You're kind of thinking, okay, why is that in there? There are, in the Mosaic law code, there are about 600 plus specific instructions, specific commands. And these, these commands in the, in the Judaic law code, they are behavior stipulations that if you follow them, they will keep you clean before God. They're, part of them involve ceremonial washings with water. And that's what's in view. They're, they're, there's no wine at the wedding, but there are these, 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 these six ceremonial stone pots that are meant to hold, not wine, they're meant to hold water. And the water is to be used not just because they didn't have pipes with running tap water, it's, they were to be used for ceremonial cleansing. They, these were fulfillments, requirements to make you acceptable to God. And if you would do them, they would make you acceptable to God and acceptable to the community. And when you take the sum total of all of those requirements, those 600 plus instructions in the Mosaic Law, they were exhaustive. They covered every area of life. 
But you would also find that if you were an adherent and you were trying to be observant, you would find that they were also exhausting. And you would find yourself soon enough exhausted, trying to obey every single one of those commandments. Now, today, we've got something like that. We make, we make up our own codes, even if we're not practicing Judaism. We find different ways to determine our virtue, to determine our honor. Maybe it's in, in the social cause that you are pursuing, and you will adhere to every tenet and follow every practice needed to support and to push that social cause. It might be your, your scrupulous religious observance, religious observance. Maybe it, for you, it, it, it shows up with not just serving, but excessive serving. Maybe for you, it shows up not with just pursuit of good spiritual disciplines, but maybe it, it's, a, it's an adherence to spiritual disciplines. Maybe it's a rigid adherence to every spiritual discipline you ever hear of, and you find that you're exhausted. You're exhausted. Are you exhausted? Are you just so tired because you realize, I can't do it all? When Mary says, they have no wine, that's you. She's talking about you. You try so hard and you still come up short and you're ashamed about it. This is part of why Jesus is troubled. Verse 7, because he knows that to fill the ceremonial stone water jars with water to bring cleansing and to, to, to provide what's needed. Verse 9, he's, to, he's going to turn the water that fills those jars into wine. He knows that that is figurative of not water, but of wrath and of his own blood. The Bible, when it talks about wine, it, it, wine can sometimes be this, this fluid of feasting and joy that's generously supplied. But Wine in the Bible also speaks of God's wrath. God sees sin, and so the cup of his wrath is portrayed. We, as people, have fallen. We have disobeyed God, and we've robbed God, and we are on the second notice that payment is due to God, the penalty of sin, the wages of sin. What Jesus is seeing here as he, as he sets up to, to fill these ceremonial jars full of water and then full of wine, what he's seeing is that I am going to have to drink the cup. I am going to have to fully drink the cup of the wrath of God. And later on, as he gets very close to that hour, the hour, his hour, he will even say, my soul is greatly troubled. Let this cup, let this cup of wrath pass from me. So Jesus here at the wedding, he's seeing the foreshadowing of what he's going to have to drink. He's troubled because Jesus knows the agony that's going to be required of him in order to bring the new wine for our cleansing. And so, at this wedding, running out of wine is emblematic of how we run out of happiness and how we run out of honor. You, you, maybe you are looking for happiness from people, and, and it really hurts if you're looking for your happiness in people because what happens when you just don't have friends who really get you? Or what happens when you have those friends, but you lose them because they move away? Or, or if you're looking for honor in something else, somewhere else, you're looking for honor maybe in your spouse. You're looking for honor maybe in your children, and they let you down. They don't turn out to be the model children that you were hoping for and that you put so much effort and expectation into. Or maybe you look for it, but then they, they bring shame. They do something that brings shame on the family name. And so 
you're robbed of the honor from your spouse, from your children. Maybe, though, if you're looking for happiness and honor in self-improvement, it's a new year. You've made new resolutions to be more diligent, to be more self-controlled, to be more faithful, to be more virtuous. That's all fine. But if you're looking for your honor and your happiness in that, and by February, you're tapped out, you've run out, and you're exhausted, you have no wine. Because the truth is, and what we come to face over and over, is that you aren't enough. You're not enough for your kids. You're not enough for your boss. You're not enough for your demanding spouse. You're not enough for life. Wherever it is that you're trying to find your happiness, your honor, when you have it, life is sunny. You feel worth. You feel like you're worth something. But when you lose it, life is misery. You feel worthless and you feel ashamed. You know, this, this is something that I, I think we all live in at some level. I think about how I go to these meetings. I, I'm a pastor, right? I'm an elder. I'm Presbyterian. And so I'll, I'll be in different kinds of meetings. Some of them are planning meetings. Some of them are, are problem-solving meetings. Some of them are personal counseling meetings. And, and, and we're asking questions sometimes with things like, how should this ministry be structured? Or how should this marriage be helped? And as I'm involved in it, I try to to be there and, and to be faithful. I try to bring biblical words. I try to bring biblical wisdom. But the truth is, because I'm human and I'm a fallen human, when I'm in these meetings, part of it is not just a struggle to find what is the will of the Lord, what is the word of the Lord here. But there's also a struggle in me to not be seeking my own honor and my own reputation in my own ability to be an effective part of these meetings to be the pastor or to be the presbyter who is effective. And so sometimes, you know, I, I can see that that's actually going on in my heart, that I'm actually not only trying to help, but I'm also seeking my own reputation. When I receive a slight, I receive a, a, an insult or a, a, a hurtful comment. I, I'm in a group, and I may be asking a question to the group, and I'll say something like, okay, now, guys, I, I have this question. Now, I know I'm out of touch with plenty of things. And then they interrupt me, and, and two of them say, yeah, you are out of touch. I'm like, what, guys, this is not... And, and my, my ego is slightly wounded. Where does my heart go? Where does my heart go when I hear that the, the, the evaluation of the group, my honor in the group is, is rising. I'm, I'm rising in the esteem of others. Where does my heart go with that? Where does my heart go when I hear things, when I hear how people are talking about me negatively and I realize I'm sinking in the esteem of the group? I'm just an average guy. Or I'm a person that maybe brings some help, but boy, I bring a lot of baggage too. When I'm seeking, when I am seeking my honor and my reputation, I'm always going to run out. I'm going to always be called out. Or if I'm rising and I've got the praise of men and everyone thinks well of me, I'll find that I've become arrogant or I'm very brittle and I can't take criticism. That's how some of these things can come up in just my regular work, our regular work. We're seeking happiness and honor. We run out of happiness and honor, but what we see, and this is our third point, Jesus supplies superior happiness and honor. What is it that will keep us turning away? What will turn us away from looking for happiness, looking for honor, the kind of happiness and the kind of honor that leaves us empty, that leaves us exhausted? This is, this is what it will be. You have to become persuaded 
of the superiority of the wine that Jesus serves. You have got to be persuaded of the superior quality of the happiness and the honor in the wine that Jesus serves. Jesus is calling you to a better wedding. Jesus is serving you a better wine. Now, long ago in the Garden of Eden, we lost happiness. We lost our happiness and we lost our honor. We sinned in Adam. And our sin brought despair and it brought dishonor to us. And, and even now as we live echoing generations after Adam in pursuing our own happiness and in pursuing our own honor, we have lost happiness and we've lost honor long, long ago when we ran out of wine. Our strenuous efforts at self-improvement and performance, they just leave us exhausted and out of joy and out of honor. Now, Jesus comes to us in the gospel. He came in this wedding and he came in the gospel. And instead of giving to us more commands, you've got 600 commands, here are another 600. And instead of giving us more practices that we need to adopt, Jesus comes and he tells us, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. Jesus does not give you any more ceremonial water stipulations that you need in order to cleanse you. In the gospel, instead of cleansing us with just ceremonial water, Jesus makes himself unclean with our sin. It's as if Jesus made himself in need of cleansing. And what we see in what he does here in this wedding is that our cleansing is not going to come by washing with water. Our honor will not come by us planning enough and supplying enough wine. Our cleansing and our honor is going to come not by water, but by the shedding of his blood. And, and that, that washing, that wine, is going to take you and be served to you at a wedding that's going to be full of joy. That's where you're headed, believer. But Jesus will go through the trauma of the cross in order to, to make that wedding happen. He willingly agreed to do that. No one else is going to make that level of sacrificial commitment to you, but Jesus did it. Jesus is that committed to you. Jesus so wants you to be at his wedding because it's not just his wedding. It's your wedding as well, church. You are the bride of Christ. And those who receive and believe on Jesus You're headed not to a week-long wedding celebration on earth. Jesus is preparing for you an unending wedding feast of the Lamb. It's your wedding. The new wine of Jesus, his blood, it's a superior wine. It surpasses in every way. It surpasses the old wine. You see that at this wedding. You see it surpasses it in this way. There's a greater joy in his wine. There's a greater joy. You see verses 9 and 10, the, the, um, the, the, the MC of the wedding, the person who's organizing the week-long festivities, he tastes the wine that Jesus makes. He doesn't know where it comes from. He tastes it, and what he tastes there is the best of wine, better than anything they had served to that point. And what he's tasting there is the goodness of Jesus. In the wine that Jesus Tastes, it's better, it's superior, because it's the goodness of Jesus. He says, he, the, the man who tastes the wine says, you have saved the best wine for last. This wine is better than anything previously served. And what we find is this, when you find happiness and honor in Jesus, when you receive from him the happiness and the honor that he gives you, 
It brings a greater subjective delight than everything else that you ever tried, that you ever drank, and that you ever pursued. There's no comparison. That means that there's no, there's no disappointment in Jesus. Now that is a high claim, isn't it? So there's a greater joy in this wine that Jesus serves. There's also, we see this, this is how it's also superior. There's an abundance, an abundance of wine. It's in verse six. Jesus does not just take a glass of wine. He doesn't just create a goblet of wine. Jesus provides 150 gallons of wine. Do you know how much wine that is? Do you know how expensive that would be? This is what it's telling us. If you have Jesus, you will not run out. You will find that your growing experience in having Jesus is that God is generous. God is not stingy. I have something that I need. I have something that I'm lacking. Jesus will supply it, and he'll, he'll be generous. He'll be abundant with it. And, and it's not just towards you personally. You find that he has wine for everyone. You can invite others to drink of this new wine. The kingdom of Jesus, it holds many, not few. There's no lack of wine in Jesus' kingdom. There is room for more. So there's an abundance in the wine, and we also see this in the wine that Jesus serves. There's greater honor in that wine. Greater honor. You see, what you, in, this, in this wedding, and something that's so sweet about this first sign, you find that Jesus saves the wedding. He saves the reputation of the groom. Now, in this miracle, who is it that gets the credit? When you look at, you look at the credit, It's given not to Jesus. The master of ceremonies says to the groom, you have saved the best wine for last. It's the groom, it's the host, not Jesus, who gets the credit. Jesus works hard so that others will get the glory. Jesus works so that others will get the credit for his good works. The old wine, the old wine that ran out says, you need to work hard. You need to put up good numbers on the board. You need to gain honor for yourself by working hard and achieving and succeeding. The gospel wine says Jesus is the one who worked hard. All of his good is accounted for you, a righteousness not by works of the law. The gospel is all about giving you a greater honor, a higher honor, a more secure glory than you could ever attain. And it tells you this, if you believe, If by faith you receive the righteousness of Jesus, if you believe, God is pleased with you for Christ's sake, and your failures cannot erase it. You know, if I could illustrate it this way, if you, if you, you know, I I grew up uh, in 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 at least somewhat of an, an Asian culture, so somewhat influenced with honor and shame values. In a in a in an honor and shame culture, we said that name means everything. And some cultures, they, they will, that shows up this way. They, they value a, a degree from, from a great school, a school with a great name. You, know, you, graduated from, you graduated from MIT, you graduated from Yale, instant honor, instant respect. It will be repeated among all the rest, like, oh, did you know that so-and-so graduated from that kind of school? And, you know, it used to be that that meant so much to me. The, the, the possibility, the association of having a, a, a degree, a diploma from a school, a graduate school with one of these prestigious names that, that were clothed with honor in some circles. This is, this is what you need to see here. The gospel If you are a believer, the gospel gives you the greatest 
of all names, the greatest family name. Can you just reflect on that for a little bit? Jesus Christ, the one who we're told in Philippians has the name above all names. And in the final day, because his name is so great, every knee is going to bow before Jesus. He's got the highest name. But today, Jesus holding the highest name when he opens his hand and he tilts his palm and he looks at it. He sees your name. Your name is inscribed on his hands. Jesus, who has the greatest name, treasures your name. He treasures you. Now, so three things here as we close. If you really get this, if if this is your Jesus and you have his happiness and his honor from his wine, this gives you a way to to get through this life and to mingle both joy and sorrow. It gives you a way to, to mingle joy and sorrow. It, it can work. The, 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 the noted preacher and writer Tim Keller says this about this wedding. Jesus' strange statement shows that sitting in the midst of this party, this joy, he is anticipating his coming sorrow. But if we believe in Jesus, then we can sit in the midst of a world of sorrow anticipating our coming joy, we will eventually sit with him at the great wedding feast of the Lamb. So it gives you a way to mingle both sorrow and joy in this life. You also get this from from the new wine of Jesus. It gives you a call to high obedience. In in this wine, if you've received it and, and you've received his honor, there's a call to high obedience. When Jesus is your happiness and Jesus is your honor, His mother can come up to you and say, whatever he says to you, do it. That's what she said to the servants. And and we're servants of Jesus. Whatever he says to you, do it. Believer, it's Jesus who's your happiness. He's your highest honor. Whatever he says to you, do it. You don't block Jesus from even a single area of your life. And third, and in closing, we see this. If you have this, if you have this new superior wine from Jesus, you now have a way to serve without seeking your own glory. Jesus was able to keep the wine flowing and his friend got the glory. His friend got the honor and the joy. Jesus did all things well and you are that groom. You're the one who got his glory and his honor. That means, having received that, that means you now can go out from here And you can serve people, you can love people without seeking a drop of glory or honor for yourself, just like Jesus. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are full of glory and honor and you've you've brought us into it. You freely share your glory, your honor with us and we will be we who have been justified, we will be sanctified and we will be glorified. And in that, that coming wedding feast of the Lamb, full of joy, we will also be unveiled and we will be filled with glory and honor. We will look like him for we will see him and we will be like him. Lord, what you, you have done for us, it is wonderful. We thank you. We thank you. And we pray, Lord, that you would send us out from here seeking your glory, filled with your joy, knowing how to both weep and rejoice even at the same time. 
We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.